0: I always hoped that I would never be in that situation, but I was in that situation. I was in a situation where I was losing guys, and then you go out, and then you go again, and then you go again. But when you trade rounds with the enemy in a fight, you've been to Fallujah, and you're street to street, you're clearing, you've been to a margin, you've been to a, a Ramadi, where you could see the eyes of your enemy. There's a whole different level of awareness, and man, that impacted me. He's talking about losing his best friends. Boom, they're gone. Watching them blow up, watching them disappear. And he would tell us, this is what you need to know. Because it doesn't stop there. You don't go home with that guy. You pick his body up. What pieces are left? You put them in a bag, your friend. And then tomorrow you go on the next mission. When you can see what one man will do to another man and you watch that, it changes you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent just shy of 11 years on active duty as 0300 Infantry in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, He received a NAM with a V for his actions in Afghanistan. He's the host of Choices Not Chances podcast, which we're going to talk about. He's the author of an amazing book called Lions of Marja, which uh, we're for sure going to dig way into. He is the real Mr. Rogers without the shoe change and lame sweater. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Ryan Rogers. Thanks, man. Uh, It's an honor, privilege to be here. It's uh, likewise having you here. I appreciate you taking the time uh, multiple times uh, to to come on the show. And uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to digging into the book and just getting your story and hearing all of the uh, different things that you've gone through uh, on behalf of this great nation. So uh, first things first. So what's the last full book that you read?
0: The last full book, I actually just finished a book last night by Jared Pruitt called It'll Buff Out. Um, and he was a Marine, um, took some damage. He was in the Battle of Ramadi uh, in the early days of that and and really went through it. You know, he really went through it with some of the guys. And I. he was a junior Marine at the time. And, um, you know, sometimes being a junior Marine, you can miss a lot of the whys. You know, why am I doing this or what – what am I doing? You know, you're being told orders and, and you execute, that's what you do. You know?
1: Um, your job is not to think almost
0: no instant obedience to, to orders. And that's why we're good. Um, in my later life, you know, when I led a squad, I, you know, whatever, four or five years after he was in Ramadi, I tried to always tell my guys why. Um, so sometimes that can get lost, uh, Lost in the Mix, but the book is great, and the way he does it is an account of, <clears throat> tells a story about Ramadi, and, and then the next chapter will be a short chapter flipped to when, um, recently after he got out, he had a stroke um, and started having some other complications from, from TBI, um, and he got blown up several times or was in the vicinity of being blown up several times uh, in that one deployment. So it, it gives a look at the, the past and then the now Uh, of the different, uh, you know, things he faced or struggles that he went through,
1: but it it was a well, well put together book. What's the, uh, single most, uh, I guess, poignant takeaway that you, that you took from it? Um, you know, I like that he is
0: exposing what he's going through post combat and post war, um, because a lot of people don't see that. And, and, it, and maybe it resonates with me a little bit more because I also have a significant TBI and, uh, and I fought retirement. They wanted to retire me, fought them, fought them, fought them. And then 18 months after I retire, I start having these grand mal seizures um, really in my sleep. And they can't really figure it out. They think that it's related to TBI and we're digging into that. But uh, that hit home to me because it's like a lot of people see what you did and they hear what you did and these war stories and your, you know, beat your chest as a prideful alpha male Marine. And then you have these things that are beyond your control that come from that life that you lived. And and a lot of people just don't see that back end. And so, you know, all the veterans of the last 20-some years of war – there's a bunch of them that are still dealing with with that and, and not even psychological, but some things that happen to their brain or to their body physically that they have no control over. And so, you know, I like I the fact that he exposed some of that. Yeah,
1: it's oh, good. Uh, there needs to be more of that for sure. Yeah. Uh, on your show, do you have a favorite guest that you've interviewed? Oh, man, you're going to do that to me? Yeah, I got to do it. Gosh. All right. so Well, not necessarily the guest, but a favorite interview that you've done. Um, for, for the sake of the interview, I guess, not so much just the guest. but yeah, Yes, I'll say
0: I just recorded one that I'm really excited to get out. Um, but of the ones that have aired, I had, um, gosh, I have a bunch of them. I had Nick Lavery on, um, and he has an amazing story of tenacity and perseverance and of um, resilience. And we need that. This nation will be weak if we are not resilient, and so to put somebody out there that has gone above and beyond for this country, lost part of his body for this country, and to continue to still have a positive impact, still t- to still serve, um, you know, in the face of that adversity adversity that he that no doubt struggles with every day. It might not look like it, but yeah. but there's a loss there that can't be you know giving back and and so I really appreciated him coming on and you know being transparent with his story to to show guys like hey yes you can be hurt but you can still be a positive influence to the people in your in your sphere of influence so
1: I like that one amen on that for sure foreign policy wise uh, as somebody who has got their hands dirty for uncle sam what is your take on specifically right now because it's it's pretty relevant uh our involvement with both ukraine and and israel what uh, what do you think uh, definitely two different answers for
0: me <clears throat> ukraine is hard for me you know maybe i maybe i don't know enough um i know they've always been a very corrupt country and I know that um, I don't know. It seems to be that we're sending hundreds, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions. more than that, billions of dollars to to a place. And what worries me is the oversight on where that money's used at. Um, I would like to think that it's being used properly, and I would like to think that it's. I would like to think that it's good because if I can send you ammunition that's sitting in a warehouse and if I can send you support, um, that really isn't affecting my bottom line. Cause I'm replenishing weapons at the cyclic rate for the next, you know, evolution. Um, then it keeps American sons of Liberty out of the way of, of, uh, hostile intent, you know, from, from, from Russia and, and, um, and I like that. I don't want to see my friends go over there and and fight for something that that they don't believe in or that I don't believe in. Um, but ultimately, that's on them, right? That they're going to do what they want. But uh, Ukraine bothers me a little bit, man. It bothers me because I probably because I don't know enough. Um, I like the fact that we're not fighting that war. Um, I like the fact that we're not appeasing Putin. I wrote a paper in my. <clears throat> in my college, um, for my college final called the appeasement of Putin. And you look at 20 years of appeasement, you look at people not holding him accountable for, uh, violating weapons treaties, um, and, and using novichok agents on his own people. And he's done these things over and over and over and locked up his opposition. Um, I don't like that. And if, if that goes too far, if that's, if that's appeased too long, I mean, we can look at the history of, of, of appeasement and see where we go. We know where that ends. And so I'm glad we're not appeasing. Um, I just think we need to be very critical about, about how we go about this. You don't want to tiptoe into World War Three. That's what I don't want to do. Um, and I hope the adults in the room are talking about that. And that, that goes for, for uh, Israel and, uh, and in the Gaza situation as well. On that end, um, I believe in it. <laughs> I believe they need to wipe, Hamas off, off of the Gaza Strip and and, and whoever um, doesn't want to leave I hope they kill them. Um, and I feel that way because uh, we were already in this we were in this day one when a bunch of American citizens were captured from a uh, from a festival of life when you took Americans you involved America and I hope we come and get you where you sleep that's, that's the way I feel about that. A lot of people don't feel that way. We don't you know, they want a ceasefire and they want this, but on 9/12/2001 nobody was telling us shit. Yeah. Shock and awe is what we called it. Yeah. And then we, we we destroyed people with weapons that we named after a religion. Yeah. That's what they need to do. This has to be stopped because if they don't do it, they will continue to have that. And then you have a bunch of people saying from the river to the sea. You're talking about exterminating the Jewish race of people, you know, um they need to unleash the hand of God on you. Yeah. That's I, the way I feel about it.
1: No, it's good insight. I appreciate it. I, yeah. don't,
0: I don't like that our tax dollars are shooting at our tax dollars. Agreed. Yeah. But if we don't have boots on the ground looking for Americans, I'd be offended.
1: Yeah. I, you know, for me, the, the biggest <laughs> thing in, in both cases is, is an accountability aspect, is that if you're taking taxpayers' money and supporting anything – there should be more of a say of said taxpayer than just who's been put in office by them. Because, you know, to me, it's, it's not always an accurate representation of, uh, who they're responsible for representing, you mm-hmm. know, and, and many times it's the exact opposite of that. It's, it's like, you know, there's, there's no, no thought considered, uh, as to what the people that put you in office think about what, what you're doing. And that shit drives me nuts. But <clears throat> Uh, on a lighter note, what do you do to maintain your beard? And does the carpet match the curtains? Well, if there was a carpet, all right. You feel me? Kind of like a uh, so tile you're a, floor down so there. You're a Manscape guy. Yeah, I'm a manscape. I'm the uh, lawnmower 4.0 fella. Sponsor of the show. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Um. Do you do anything to it? You fuck with it? Beard. Yeah.
0: Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I, I got a pick. I put a bunch of shit in it. I got some beard balm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you do the whole thing? I don't I do, do the shit. whole thing. I yeah, do I, the whole thing. I don't do
1: much with mine. I mean, I, I trim it, but. Yeah. I mean, my, well, my, it just
0: grows in epic. I mean, yeah. and you don't have to, that's, that's, that's,
1: that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I wouldn't know about that. Uh, what's your normal morning routine on a day that you're in town?
0: You know, when I'm home, I, I when I'm home, I, I'm very, very family man, heavy, heavily, uh, involved in my, with my kids. And so, you know, my wife works, so we get up about the same time she's getting ready. I get ready. Um, and then, uh, she gets my oldest off to school and then I get the two younger ones. I take them, them to school. And then, um, then I come back, I I do a meditation, I go out back, (laughs) I don't have any special, uh, no no special routine, I go out back and I have a pool, I have a pool box, I don't have a pool, but I used to, I brought the box for storage, and I just kind of sit up on it. um, In the back in the backyard, I try to, you know, do um, some meditative breathing, some belly breathing. And um, it doesn't last long, maybe 20 minutes, I just try to really clear my head and think about what I have to do for the day, for the week, for the month. Um, And then, uh, and then I always try to come in and I always try to do an hour of reading. I try to do an hour of writing uh, depending on what's on my plate. So that's the way I try to try to start off that first two and a half hours after the kids get to school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Do you mind if I ask how old your kids are? Yep. I got 11, I got nine and I got eight. Yeah. And uh, what does your wife do for a living, if you don't mind? She's a hearing aid um, specialist. She oh, works no, she at a hearing aid office, which oh, helps cool. me out. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. is your uh, hearing pretty fucked?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one of the big reasons why they, they looked at retiring me uh, at the end. was I, I was in uh, I had a seat to ANS from uh, for MARSOC, and I got called a couple of days before. They said, hey, you, you failed the hearing thing on your S&W physical You got to go see this lady. I just thought they were going to beep and reset my baseline. So I wasn't pressed, you know, and I went in there and they did, they did not do the beeps. They did a series of tests where they read words and they were basically showing me that I was communicating by reading lips (laughs) essentially. Yeah. And, um, and so that set me into a, a 16 week program to make sure my brain was okay because both my eardrums, they figured out were ruptured after that appointment. And, um, and then that sixteen week program found you know things in my brain. Yeah. So, damn. Uh, where are you originally from? Ohio. Ohio. What, mm. uh, what part? Like South Central, uh, below Columbus, maybe forty five minutes. Cornfield, small place. Oh, okay.
1: Uh, Browns or or Bengals. Bengals. Yeah. Does it Does it matter? I mean, it like does this, to like me
0: because I'm not an NFL guy. Yeah. Uh, but my brother. Uh, was a teacher and a football coach at Athens High School where Joe Burrow went. Oh, nice. He taught him in middle school and coached him, moved up to high school, was assistant coach and a teacher for him. And oh, so good. I have watched that kid since Day his one, junior huh? year, senior year of high school. Yeah. And um, okay. And so I have that personal. Once he got in the NFL and got to the team that I used to cheer for, I was like, okay, yeah. I got yeah. to get in it. Rock and roll. Uh, siblings growing up? Yep. So I have a bunch more now, but uh, – from the first litter, it was me and three other boys, you know, um, me and three other boys. I was one of four boys as a second of four boys. And then, you know, later in life, my dad had another litter of three and, um, uh, and adopted a, you know, a son. Yeah. Um, and so there's like, I'm one of eight, I guess now, or oh, wow. one of seven, something like that.
1: How old were you when, uh, when your dad remarried and started having other kids, I me mean, was in the Marine Corps. Oh, okay. So you guys didn't grow up together.
0: No, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm still close with them. They're, yeah. You know, we have a family's everything where I come from. Yeah. And um, and so I I don't talk to them probably you know obviously not as much as um I should. There's they're like 16, 14, 13 in that range. Yeah. And so I got two sisters and a brother from that, and then I have my uh, my stepbrother Caden who who's in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, working so.
1: The, uh, the three other boys that you grew up with, um, what was uh childhood like being two of four boys and growing up in a uh, small town, Ohio? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm never a guy that say I went without my
0: family always figured it out. No matter what situation they were in, my parents figured it out. And, um, yeah. So John is my older brother. He's awesome. I look up to him still as one of my heroes. Um, he's awesome. He, he towed the straight line and, uh. I veered you know yeah. what I mean so <laughs> so um I probably took a lot of lot of eyes and focus you know off of him because of my uh the way I was but then I had uh, Lucas is the next one down from me and then Tyler was the baby yeah and they're all very successful human beings um any of them join the military so Lucas was in the National Guard he did a pump to Kandahar um I believe it was Kandahar and uh, then he did some White House airspace security. Oh, cool! Um, he he had something to do with uh, like Patriot style missiles, yeah. like air defense. So, um, but he was in, uh, which is cool, man. Because yeah. like when he came home from Afghanistan, it was different. Like, mm-hmm. and he knew it. I'm like, okay, now we're now we're on a different level of understanding. Yeah. And uh, so that's been cool. Yeah. Um, did you play any sports growing up? Yeah, like probably all of them. Um, you excel at anyone in particular? Baseball was probably my best one. Um, I was decent at wrestling as well, but baseball was kind of like my where my passion was. I played football in high school too, and I started, and, and you know, I was decent, but it was never going to, you know, go past that. Baseball, I could throw pretty fast as a junior, somewhere 89, 90 miles an hour, something like that. Um, no shit. Yeah, and so, and you your- know, control was a problem, but... Uh, <laughs>
1: So yeah. you're a wild thing from major league. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. He threw. He threw much <laughs> faster. But yeah, yeah. He was all over the place till he had glasses, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe that was my issue. Yeah. Uh Did you ever throw a grenade in combat? I did not personally throw a grenade. Well, ain't that a waste? Waste I know, of an arm. Huh?
0: God damn it! It's a lot heavier though. Yeah.
1: No, I know it. It's a, it's a different throw for sure. Um, were there any significant events that took place in your childhood that? that really uh, were super impactful. Obviously, everybody's childhood has different things, but was there something that stands out in particular that whether it was traumatic or exciting or whatever that really kind of stands out as being the most impactful? I think 9-11. Um, How old were you when uh, that happened?
0: I was a sophomore in high school. Mm. Um, before that, man, I like I said, I had a, a good childhood. My parents are protective, although they let us go get – you know they were they were cautiously protect you know cautious yeah. but they would let us mess up but so that was good but um probably a lot of the lessons or the big impactful things were when people got in trouble for my one time my brother got in trouble for something I did and I didn't do anything about it so um, it crushed me and yeah. I said I'll never make that mistake again you know yeah. so, and my brother didn't say shit yeah he just earned he just took it you know, looking out for me. So that was a huge thing. And then, um, you know, we were in, we were in uh religion was, a, was a big thing when I was growing up, which, you know, I fought with for the last, <laughs> since I left home, I fought with that. And especially going over and doing some of this stuff, religion has had a profound impact on at least my foundation as a person. Um, you know, so, and we hunted, man. That's what I did. We hunted, we fished, we were outside. My dad trapped. I mean, we hunted everything from rabbits to elk, you know. Um, what did your dad do for a living? He's an entrepreneur. He owns his own company. He's, uh, he's an, he's, he, he has a couple different things. He has an online auctioneer auction company. People go on, they get a bidder number they bid on. You know, he's got online auctions. He's also an in-person auctioneer. He's the uh, regional auctioneer for uh, Whitetails Unlimited in like Ohio and a couple other places, um, but he's also in real estate. So he also sells real estate. He's a hustler. He's a legal hustler. <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. I that's what I refer to him as. Yeah, so. that's good stuff.
1: Was uh, Was nine eleven uh, your motivation to serve?
0: Yeah, it switched me. Yeah, I was baseball. I was going to try to get on with Wright State up in Dayton, and I think I threw hard enough and and could do
1: well enough to do that, but. Yeah, that. Uh, so walk me through the mentality of the, the day that that happened. What was going through your mind?
0: I was in school, and they wheeled in a um, – teacher wheeled in like a uh, cart TV. You remember? A little TV set up on a little cart. They wheel it in and plug it in. And uh, and when they plugged it in, the first tower had already been hit. I believe the second tower had already been hit. And um, so they were just burning. We we're you know I don't know, you're 15 or 14, whatever you are, and you're looking at it trying to think trying to make sense of it, trying to, you know, and if you remember the live footage from TV that day, there were anchors cussing and, you know, dropping the F-bomb. And, and so you knew that something was different. And all these different things, you know, were coming in. And when you see your own countrymen and women jumping out of a building, it changed me you know, and holding their skirts down to have some sense of humanity on the way down and respect somehow. Um, and instantly there was something inside my gut that just turned, you know, and it said, uh, you're going this way, you know. Yeah. So
1: so from that day forward, was it, uh, first of all, it's a, a powerful testimony. It's, uh, I hate to use the word interesting or need or special to to hear you go through that mentality but you can you can feel the emotion that I still have it to no, this mean, day. that's yeah. what I mean like you, you can feel it just hearing you talk about it which is is I guess an honor to experience it um <clears throat> from that day forward was it the Marine Corps right away or or did you kind of go back and forth as to what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it yeah there was a Marine Corps recruiter always at my school always and um uh,
0: I didn't look anywhere else, you know, I wanted to be a Marine, and, you know, I don't know where that came from, other than I liked the blues, I wanted to do the <laughs> hardest thing, you know, yeah. I wanted to be with the best, um, and, so it was 04 when I graduated high school, and, um there were bad things going on, and I knew that if you know, I thought that if I get to the Marines, the Marines are going to put me there. That's first to fight, first to serve. That's their their slogan. So, yeah, um, it took me a couple years after enlisting to get where I wanted to be, but yeah, but I got there. Yeah, did you uh, go in right after high school? Yeah, I went on an elk hunt in September with my dad, and uh, it's kind of like a graduation present. Went out out with the bow. Yeah, and uh, and right after I got back from that trip. September 27th, I shipped, and uh, and that was it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The Mike Drop Podcast is proud to be sponsored by American Hartford Gold. Uh, these days, the economy is all over the place. Interest rates are crazy. Inflation is nuts. Uh, a lot of times it's tough to trust the government. What I will say is that having um, you know, some sort of liquidity on hand, i.e. cash, gold, et cetera, is, uh, is important. The problem with cash, and I'm speaking from personal experience, is that whether it's 500 a 1000 5000 10000 however much cash you want to keep on hand, be it in a safe or what have you, is that let's say it's $1,000. You put that in a safe, well, five years from now, if you're hanging on to that for emergencies or whatever— Five years from now, that's still going to be worth one thousand American dollars. A thousand dollars in gold five years from now is going to be worth more than that. If you look at the the historical trend of gold since it's been kept track of in the United States and people have been keeping it on hand, it's gone up. You know, you, you really can't go wrong with it. Uh, and I think it's a it's a good hedge against inflation in that manner. Um, American Heart for Gold is committed to help. You By bringing you the truth of that, they have a five-star rating from thousands of reviews and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. They can show you how to help protect all your savings and retirement accounts. If you don't want to keep physical gold, you can do gold IRAs or you can have it delivered to your doorstep. It can be set up from a traditional IRA, a 401k, or a thrift savings plan. Really, however it is that you want to incorporate gold into your portfolio, whether it's a significant portion of your portfolio or just having some liquidity at home, it's not losing money every time inflation goes up, which it continues to do. Call them now at 855-967-1413 to see if you can qualify for up to fifteen thousand dollars of free silver on your first order. That's 855-967-1413, or text DROP D R O P all caps to 65532. Again, that's 855-967-1413 or text DROP to 65532. American Hartford Gold will hook you up. Message and data rates may apply. Individual results may vary. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. I want to take a second to talk about something near and dear to my heart, and that is a staunch supporter of this podcast, which is Bub's Naturals. Uh, the hat sitting in front of me uh, here on our coffee table here in the studio belonged to Glenn Doherty. His nickname was Bub. Uh, I did two platoons with him, and his childhood best friend uh, and another colleague of theirs, uh, Sean is the best friend, TJ is their colleague, uh, started Bub's Naturals, which is a collagen and MCT oil company uh, in Bub's or Glenn's honor. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's uh, an absolute honor to be, sponsored by and working with a company that, um, you know, was started in the honor of one of my closest friends and, and a guy that I went to war with. And, uh, you know, the, the Bubs brand is not only super quality, um, you know, collagen, uh, collagen powder, as well as MCT oil powder. Um, you know, but they also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Uh, they donate proceeds from their product sales to the glen memorial foundation which uh you know to me just furthers uh you know the the mission set on veterans day they give a hundred percent back so uh, i do believe it's the best collagen on the planet uh, i like to mix it in with uh, morning coffee the mct oil powder the same thing uh, mixes in very easy it tastes great uh, and it just kind of adds everything that you want to start your day off from a brain health standpoint from joint support gut support um, you know mct oil and Collagen are, are two components, especially as as we age, uh, that are integral components to uh, to health. And so, uh, to be able to work with Bubs Naturals and uh, be able to to work with them and, and sponsor a product that uh, number one is a high quality product, and number two is is so near and dear to uh, you know to my heart and to the Mike Drop podcast for for who it uh, was started for and what it stands for. Um, you know, it's just uh, it's an amazing amazing place to be. So. Um, it is whole 30 approved. Um, it's sports uh, sport certified, so you're not uh, going to run into any problems with that. Um, and I will say that, um, you know, right now they're, they're offering uh, 20%, <clears throat> 20% off if you go to bubsnaturals.com and, uh, use the mic drop code. So, uh, I really highly encourage you to, to try it out, incorporate it into your day, to day for joint health, for brain health, uh, for cognition, for gut health, and, uh, and to support an amazing organization that does a lot of things uh, in Glenn Bubb's honor. So uh, go to bubbsnaturals.com. Mike drop is the code, 20% off. What was the, the experience of going to boot camp? And I'm assuming you went through all of kind of the standard infantry pipeline to, to get to that point. Um, how, how was it going through it versus what you thought it was going to be? I had a really strict dad. You know yeah. what I mean. Um, he wasn't a, a vet ever, right? No, he was just a hard ass. He was just yeah. a, he's just a
0: just a hard hard ass dude. I yeah. mean, he's a great dude. Yeah. Um, but nothing I experienced in boot camp scratched the level of If I pissed my dad <laughs> off, you know, like growing really? up. I mean, yeah. I mean, he was very, very, very strict, very stern. He had high expectations, and so I just had that growing. Like we had that growing up. Now you tell me what the expectation is. I'll give you. I'll give you what what is expected. And um, and I remember my dad told me, you know, not being a vet, which is wild. He was impacted by some Vietnam vets, and and his his grandfather, my great grandfather, was uh, fought against the Japanese in World War II um, as an Army medic, and so he had you know some something uh, of, of that. But he just told me, hey, they're gonna make you paint a wall white, and when you paint it white, they're gonna come in and tell you that it was supposed to be black. And everything is a game. Yeah, this is all a big game. Take it serious. But don't let yourself get overwhelmed by the fuckery, basically. And so I just went in with that mindset. And I was never like the most physically fit guy. You know, I do the three mile and I think in boot camp in like 19 and a half, maybe 20 minutes, which is okay, but it's not perfect. And it's not the last, you know, pull ups were always a hard thing for me. Um, So instead of maxing out at 20, I'd get like 15 and that means you have to run really fast, you know? So you just kind of balance that out. But boot camp, outside of the physical aspect of it was, I treated it like a game. Like I let my stomach tell me what time of day it was and I would go from chow to chow, you know what I mean? And if you just kept that mindset, you break it up in three or four hour blocks instead of looking at the whole 12 weeks or whatever you're going to be there. Yeah. Um, and, and put out, you know, um, my dad, unfortunately, fortunately, or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, he was always like our coaches growing up. You know, he didn't trust other people to do it right, I guess, which now I have a bit of that in me. But so so there were high expectations, especially if your dad's a coach like you're going to get it. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, boot camp wasn't hard. Like when I think about my service, I did so many other things that were emotionally and physically so difficult that when I, when people ask me about it's just hard for me I don't have there's there's funny things that happen like seeing grown men piss themselves that's funny yeah um seeing people break uh for getting yelled at to me was funny uh shouldn't be funny but it's almost sad now that I think about it but at the time it was funny
1: to me you know mm. um yeah there, there's a weird mob mentality <coughs> that way I think whether it's boot camp or any type of tough selection process where human beings in a, in a group uh, have this weird mob, like uh, just going after fellow man in in a strange way that way. Like it's it's the exact opposite of, of empathy. It's almost like, I mean, it's hard to, hard to kind of explain, I guess, but I mean, I saw some of that in buds too, where like, you know, like as a class, even, you know, we would hear the bell ring of somebody quitting and we'd fucking cheer, you know? And so it's like, (laughs) imagine. Got another one. Well, I mean, imagine being the person that quit, right? You you ring the bell and the class that that you were just kind of, you know, pseudo brother in arms with is now cheering the fact that you just quit. Like that's got to fuck with you. Oh yeah. You know, but it's also like, and again, as an 18 year old, I didn't really think much of it at the time, but looking back as a 45 year old, it's like, Trying to wrap my head around kind of the human psychology behind it, not just oh that sucks or that was funny or you know it's like yeah. wh- why why do we do that? You know, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. But um, going through um, infantry training and, and all of that, did anything kind of stand out as you know being either memorable or or uh, challenging or I- anything, or is it just kind of um, check the box?
0: He said boot camp was easy. I was an honor grad in my class. I checked in, and so I didn't go straight to the fleet as, as we talked offline. I went to a, a basic security guard school, but uh, for, for fast company, but everybody has to go to the school of infantry if you're an 03 designator. And so, man, I loved it. <laughs> like, you're gonna pay me to do what run around the woods and train? I loved it. Um, I did have a Fallujah or no as Fallujah 1 vet, uh, as a combat instructor. And his name was uh, Jekyll, Sergeant Jekyll. And um, at night, you know, we'd be bivouacking in the field or whatever. You know, if we we're, were in the bricks, then uh, there would be that duty at NCO. And when he had, when he had uh, duty and was, you know, watching over us whenever we'd sleep, he would break out um, letters that he wrote to his mother while he was over there. And, man, that impacted me. He's talking about losing his best friends. Boom. They're gone. Watching them blow up, watching them disappear. And, and, um, and then he would do like, you know, like a tie in a with them. What's in it for us to know this. And he would tell us, you like, this is what you need to know that because it doesn't stop there. You don't go home with that guy. You don't, you pick his body up. What pieces are left? You put them in a bag, your friend. And then tomorrow you go on the next mission. And, um, I always hoped that I would never be in that situation, but I was in that situation. I was in a situation where I was losing guys and, um, and then you go out and then you go again and then you go again. And it's amazing because Marines and, and and soldiers, they do that and (laughs) nobody talks about it, but that is no small feat to watch your, watch your brother get vaporized or watch your brother take one, um, you know, one kid got – one of our guys got strafed from his pelvic girdle to his face. And then that's it. You don't go to a funeral. You don't – you put him in a bird. You get your guys together and say, hey, tighten the fuck up. Let's go. Um, and that's why, that's why I refer to our, uh, our servicemen and women as national treasures. That's what they are. They'll do that for people that they don't even know and expect nothing from it. So, Um. I don't know why I got off on that tangent. Well, no, I
1: mean, so it sounds like your instructor at that time was was very impactful and and used a lot of the lessons and experiences that he'd been through to benefit mm. you know you guys as as students. Was it blatantly obvious, like right out of the get go, even before you knew or he told you what he had been through? Was there something different about him? Like, oh, yeah, can you, you could, can you explain tell. it? I mean, I try to tell people it's.
0: It's in people's eyes. If you, you want to know if somebody's been to combat that's talking to you? Look in their eyes and see if you can believe it because there's something different in somebody's eyes. There's something different in the demeanor of a man who has been in the, in the ultimate arena. Not been at TQ, and that's not what I'm talking about, and this is no shade. I'm throwing no shade at anybody. But when you trade rounds with the enemy in a fight, you've been to Fallujah, and you're street to street, you're clearing. You've been to a Marja, you've been to a, a Ramadi, where you could see the eyes of your enemy. Um, there's a whole different level of awareness. When you can see what one man will do to another man and you watch that, it changes you. Yeah. And, and it's in the eyes. You can tell it when you look at somebody. I can tell it when I look at somebody. Yeah.
1: Was there a, a single thing that, uh, that he passed on to you that uh, is memorable during Just it? train.
0: He made, such a, he made such a big deal about train. All you can do is train. And I didn't take that lesson until after I I was not that person until I came home from that deployment. And I did four before that. But when you're there and you start losing people and they're under your command, all you can do is train. Yeah. Yeah.
1: How how long was it between when you finished infantry and then you went through, you said fast after that? Mm -hmm. Um, What was the pipeline after that? Did you go right to... Or, or I guess walk us through your your journey that way.
0: So after SOI, of of course I'm reeling because now I have to go to this other school. I got these buddies who are now going to go make Fallujah 2 um, happen. Um and I'm going to another school. So my guys all go to the fleet and they're getting put into combat replacement units and plusing an up a unit to go back to, you know, back into Iraq immediately and I'm at this other school, you know, learning more stuff which was it was a blessing. I I try to tell people that my career, even though it didn't start the way I wanted it to start. And I think a lot of guys can relate to this. um, I hit these necessary, unlikely things that I didn't have planned, but that made me good when I needed to be good. And so fast was one of those. We got a shit ton of training in fast. A lot of guys you know, they call them fake ass seal team. They don't like us when we get to the fleet because we've been doing different stuff outside the vein of infantry. We haven't been deploying like them, but they do get a shitload of rounds. And so you will come out of that. Um, if you have a good command, which I did heavy training command, um, we shot all the time and we shot everything. I was cross trained on two forty on the 50, um, everything from, you know, M4s, to the combat shotguns, to the, to the Beretta 9. I mean, we came out of that experts at all of that because it was just every single week we were in the field doing it. And then we got to go to Advanced Urban Combat School out of Chesapeake, Virginia, which is an amazing school, two-story live shoot house, um, shooting steel on time, uh, hostage situations on time, transitioning from primary to secondary on time. And so you come out of that school – yoked you know as far as cqb is concerned and the big reason for that is because when you're in fast you will get activated if there's like a um embassy threat and you're going to be going into reclear an embassy or hold an embassy Uh, if you have a trap mission you know something like that is in the vein or in the mission set of fast just doesn't happen people don't know how to use the company um at the higher end um but that was great. I go into Fast um, up in Norfolk. I'm stationed with 3rd Fast. And uh, they had two drug pops in the senior platoon. So you're supposed to have 24 months um, per your contract with them. But they had two drug pops. So myself and my roommate, Chavez, uh, got put in 1st Platoon when we were scheduled to go to 5th Platoon. So that cut like six months off of our time there. So I was only there for 18 months. But we did a Cuba deployment. We did an RFDF out of, out of Banger. Um, just some added security for that. And then, um, Cuba was cool. Nothing. It was a cool boot mission. Um, I got to learn a lot, you know, but we didn't do anything. We did some like, uh, combat patrols. You know, we'd have the coast guard take out their boats and insert us somewhere and patrol, which was really cool on the ground experience. Um, and we went from there, closed out Cuba, and then we went on a, um, embassy qrf mission to bahrain so we stationed right there in uh in bahrain i think it's called manama it's one of the navy bases right there yeah and uh we were there for seven seven months uh and we got a mission uh there's when israel and um were feuding and we went and did a non-combatant evacuation out of um staged out of cyprus went over and took american citizens floated them back and got them out of that Mm. that area um which was a cool mission um Again, no fighting. Um, took took uh, choppers over, refueled on uh, Eisenhower. Squad went over and secured with the embassy. The, the, uh, the strike group came in and commandeered uh, like a couple of ships, like a, like a cruise liner and a ferry boat. And so then we put guns up on those and got people onto them and floated back over. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, it's still a real-world mission, your first real-world mission, right? Did you get kind of that, like cherry pop cotton mouth like holy fuck like this this could go south i mean even though it's yeah yeah i mean because it could right i mean like it could turn into fucking black hawk down you know i mean it could
0: have and i don't think i was thinking about that really um so i didn't have it i was just like this is a bullshit mission (laughs) kind of thing until we were i was on a 50 i think i was on a 50 and um just kind of chilling. you got all these americans down here and they made us wear plain clothes because they didn't want an american face on it And so even the guys that went over in the chopper and the other squad, they they went in with a sea bag full of weapons down into the
1: embassy. Shaved face though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Freshly shorn, polo, tucked in, belt. We look like Marines. Civilian uniform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Civilian uniform. Yeah. But um, (laughs) I remember being on the float back uh, in that, in that ferry boat and I'm on one of the guns and I'm hearing, you know, you're just listening to these people talk. A lot of them are scared. We had people that were fucked up from rockets coming in and shit. And, um, you start hearing the people say, Where the fuck are the Marines at? Why do we not have Marines here? And you know, you're not supposed to say anything. And uh and then one of the uh one of the engines blew up on our ferry boat. boom! And that's when I thought we were hit. So that's when I got my that almost that yeah. cotton mouth, oh shit. I didn't know if you know, who knows what we got hit by. Yeah. And uh ended up being an engine, but everybody was scared. And that's when you started hearing people, where's the marines? This, at and the other thing. And finally we were all like, Hey, like we got you. You're okay. Yeah. You think these fifty cows belong to other people? And uh and then as soon as we came into the port in Cyprus, there was God, there was CNN and MSNBC, all these cameras, and uh and so it was a feel good. It was like I was, you know, I got that feeling of actually helping yeah. Americans, right? Because yeah. yeah. usually we're not that's you don't get that feeling. Yeah. When you're in the sandbox, there's yeah. no other Americans, you don't feel yeah. like you're helping them. So yeah, that was a cool one. Yeah. That was your first
1: deployment. <sighs> Technically, kind of. Well, it's my first outside. Well, yeah. I went to Cuba before that, but yeah, yeah it's, okay. it's the first real yeah. world. So you did 24 months with the fast?
0: Like 18. Okay. Because of those drug pops, so we yeah. missed the first six months yes, of I forming and,
1: and shit. Uh, was that the last thing, real world or operationally, that you did with him? Then you yep. came back home, and then you went to a... 3-2. 3-2. Yep. 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines out of Camp Lejeune. And from there, that's when you uh, deployed to the sandbox the yep. first time. Yep, yep. So, this is your first um, deployment to the sandbox. Did you go to Iraq or Afghanistan? Mm, Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what year was this? This was 06? Six, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, six started work ups probably like in 06 and 07 or S- <coughs> in
1: 207. Okay. So, you're what, 21, 22 years old?
0: 20. I, I think I turned 21 when I was in 3 2.
1: Okay. Um, what kind of shift was that going from. Fast to regular infantry.
0: Well, infantry. The infantry is a different culture than anywhere. <clears throat> and when I was in fast, it even though we were all infantrymen, even though we were training as infantry, um, you don't have that. You don't have that camp lejeune river road life. Uh, that's a different life. Um, <laughs> it was cool. Uh, I checked in at, as a corporal, or no, I checked in and, and I picked up corporal very fast uh, after I checked in. And one of the difficulties of that is that now I'm expected to lead an infantry squad because our op tempo was high and our T, we weren't TO in any battalion. So you had, you know, sometimes you had lance corporals as squad leaders. Um, and so I took over a squad as a lance corporal knowing that I was getting picked uh, picking up corporal. And so now I'm leading guys who were just on this last deployment to Iraq where they lost people, a Habaniya uh, deployment. And so you had, what I had was a bunch of Lance corporals about to pick up corporal that thought they were taking the squad. And now I come in from fast with no combat deployment. And now I'm placed in charge of them. And so that's, that's a struggle, you know, when you got to lead your peers, um, especially peers that maybe don't uh, respect you or don't know you. um, And they thought that they were going to have a position that you have. um, That's difficult. So I had to, I had to face that through the entire workup. Um, my first team leader, uh, somebody who I'm friends with now, um, Richard Hernandez, and me and him kind of bumped heads. He wanted to do things one way. I would do things a different way. And I learned a lot with that squad. It was my first time having a squad, you know, and um, and you got to feel that out. There, there's things you can do right. There's things you can do wrong. And uh, if you don't have any kind of mentorship and you have to just kind of slay through that yourself to figure out what works uh, can be difficult. Yeah. Um,
1: Did you get any of the, who the fuck are you? You haven't been to to combat. I mean, were people that vocal about
0: it? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. The entire way until I went to Iraq um, with them as their leadership. And I think at that point, the respect started to come. Um, I was always somebody who could, who could stay very, very uh, calm no matter what was going on. And, some of the guys that gave me the hardest flack weren't, weren't the same. Yeah. And so when I was able to maintain, I think a calm presence, um, it was like, okay, you know, I think that a little bit of respect grew. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I dealt with that all the way till we deployed, you know, I had team leaders of mine that belonged to me trying to tell me I needed to shave my head before we went to Iraq. Cause I'd never been there. Um, things like that. Yeah. And it's, uh, just you know it's something you got to deal with something you got to feel through
1: and uh did you uh, respond with like how about you shave it for me and see how that goes for you or, or something like that or
0: you know no I didn't it? I didn't yeah because you know being me I'm not I wasn't the me that I am now yeah and you know I died a thousand times since then to be who I am now and uh and I was cock strong um I micromanaged that squad too much um like I said, that was a squad that I had to feel through um, and find out who I'm going to be and who do I want to be as a leader. And how do I want my squad um, relationship to be? And it sucks because I wasn't, I was junior. Um, all of us were junior. And so it, it wasn't ideal. You know, um, there, were, there was not a lot of experience. You know, all the senior guys that came home from Iraq on that Habanilla deployment essentially said, fuck this. Um, And so there was a big washout and now you have guys coming in. Right. So um, by the end of it, by the end of that deployment, we were, we were tight. Um, We were tight in Iraq, even we did well over there. Uh, But I would say that I'm glad it wasn't that squad and me as a squad leader on that deployment.
1: Yeah. That would have been different. How, how was that first Iraq deployment operationally?
0: It was a big letdown for me. Um, Didn't do a lot. No, I wanted, I wanted a kinetic fight and I wanted to go get them. And it was, you know, all the good ones had died already is what I like to laugh about. By the time I got there, they'd killed the good ones, uh, or the bad ones, and all the good ones were left. And so they were very good at in placing IEDs. Um, as I'm sure you know. They um but that was the fight. Yeah. Pop shots, IDs, the, the occasional tick, but really nothing decisive, nothing more than a few, you know, exchanges. Um, so it just wasn't, I wanted to go, I wanted to go get on, get after it. And, um, so coming back from that, it was just like, I felt like I was chasing combat since I was in fast and everybody's doing these things. And then I get out of fast and it's my time to go over and, you know, have a squad just really, you know, put the hammer down and never, I never, I
1: fired maybe two shots. Yeah. Three shots. Yeah. Um, all right, so you come back from that, mm-hmm. and uh, how long were you home before you went to, the, well, actually, before before you continue the timeline, did the why that you talk about in the, in the book that you read, and kind of placing a higher importance on that now, which I do too, and, and didn't back then similarly, did you ever find yourself thinking, like, why are we in Iraq? Like... I, I wanted to join because of Afghanistan. Like what the fuck are we doing here? Was, was that ever in your mind?
0: No, not really. Yeah. I, I viewed, um, I viewed Iraq as, you know, there's a authoritarian regime that is doing bad things to its people. And, you know, at the time I think most people were operating under the impression that they had weapons of mass destruction. And it's like, Hey, we're already <laughs> over in the region. And, you know, the region would be better without Saddam Hussein. Um, his bath party extremist and um and it gave me a place to go fight i I, do you still feel that way there's a lot that's come out about wmds and you know things that the federal government knew and didn't know um i don't feel the same way no not about iraq And, and i'm glad i didn't um i'm glad that deployment was what it was guys didn't psychologically um Struggle with that one as, as bad as, you know, some of the other harder fighting deployments. And, and um, now they don't have to sit back and wonder why their buddies are dead. Yeah, um, Guys that lost people in Ramadi and Fallujah, anywhere in Iraq, I'm sure in the back of their head there's something um, churning about that. But I would also say, like I try to tell guys, like, it doesn't matter what you think you did or you didn't do. What you did was you, um, you introduced uh, Western ideals and the idea of freedom to people who never had that before, never had real freedom. And I'd say the same thing about Afghanistan. You know, we'll talk about it, but at least the fighting age males that are there that, you know, today, they have some sort of spark inside them that says this is what it is and you can have it. And we showed you that. Now, if they can't ever grow that, then okay, but you were there for your brothers to the left and the right, and you were you were there to show and oppress people what freedom is. Yeah. After that,
1: it's on them what to do with it. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, for me, I I maybe even reduce it even simpler to just say like, you know, because I was in Iraq, not Afghanistan, and so um, you know, for me, it was hey, I volunteered to serve my country, and and give everything I had for them to decide, uh, you know, the way they see fit my, you know, however, to, to use me in that capacity. And, and, uh, you know, I, I did everything I could for myself and, and all of my teammates to come home and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. like, well, and that's I, enough. I agree. I mean, cause why you're there and who decides and all that, that's out of your hands, period. Mm-hmm. You know, so you either Roger up to fucking do what your country asks of you or you don't, you know and I mean? To me, it really is that simple Yeah, because the, The slippery slope, I think, and not to get off on a a tangent, but like if you use the the metric of a tyrannical dictatorship who oppresses its people and and is, you know, horribly fucking, I guess, brutal, either maintains weapons of mass destruction or is on the path to do it. Like there's a lot of countries that, I mean, China, they have nukes. They're fucking terrible to their people We don't Mm -hmm. do shit about that. For that matter, right next door, Iran. No fucking different. Like, they're on the brink of having a, a nuclear weapon. For yeah. that matter, they've killed thousands of Americans. You know, whether it's Hezbollah, Hamas, or even all of their incursions of using EFPs and shit in Iraq and, and helping them get IDs. I mean, they have more American blood on their hands probably than any other fucking country. Agreed. And we haven't done a fucking thing about it, which honestly pisses me off. Like, I, I wish we would do more to Iran than, than we have. It, it chaps my ass to see... And I'm not. Even, I'm not going to use the term leaders. I will say, the the spineless jellyfish wearing suits that are in positions of fucking uh, unfortunate authority, you know that uh, that say things like "don't," you know, as as being their warning, and and you know, watching attacks happen and them doing basically fuck all about it really drives me nuts. I mean, it it, it bothers me that
0: we hit an un- uh, unmanned weapons and, and uh, ammunition depot. After there's been so many strikes per po- uh, out of proxy for Iran, and we know it, yeah, and yeah, we don't have to yeah, go down yep. that too far, yeah, but that's I'm, a
1: whole, that's a whole other episode. But yeah. <laughs> at any rate, uh, so you come back from that, it's kind of a from an op tempo standpoint, kind of a letdown. Um, you're home for a period of time, and then were the next two in Afghanistan or no, no,
0: so only one after that. But I came home so okay. so. Um, kind of butthurt let's just put it that way that that deployment went the way it went and when they released you know what we were doing next it was going to be a mew and i was like i'm not doing a
1: music. This is a, a marine expeditionary unit which uh boils down to being on a fucking boat for at least six months but probably a year prior being on it for most of that time also
0: facts and yeah. uh i looked at that as not appetizing I was going through a divorce from my first wife. And uh, so it's like, man, you're going to go home to that because um, it was coming up on time if I needed to re enlist or not in like a year. So I was trying to work through that. And uh, instead of going on the Mew, I went and tried out for the um, All Marine boxing team there on Camp Lejeune. I made it. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then I fought, for, uh, I fought for the Marine team. I went like six and one over nine months. Really? And then I got called back to either re-enlist or get out with a career planner.
1: As you guys know, sleep is a huge component to recovery uh, and really all aspects in life. And it's something that a lot of us have struggled with, uh, you know, for a lot of our lives, frankly. Uh, As you know, I've been a a big proponent of Beam, which is a hot cocoa that, uh, you know, you drink before you go to sleep. And it's helped tremendously in terms of hours of sleep maintained as well as the uh, quality of sleep. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, which is their science-backed hot cocoa for sleep, and it's got no added sugar. Better sleep has never tasted better. As you know, other sleep aids can cause next-day grogginess um, and just make you feel crappy, but Dream contains a powerful, all-natural blend of raishi, magnesium, L-theanine, and apigenin, also melatonin, to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up feeling refreshed. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash micdrop, all caps, all one word, and use code drop all one word, all caps, at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash micdrop and use code drop for up to 40% off. Yeah. Uh, Did you box at all growing up? No. No shit. I fought a lot. Yeah. Like I said, my brother was here and I was
0: like marijuana alcohol fighting (laughs) kind of thing.
1: But I mean, to be fair, street fighting versus trained and, you know, like how, what was the metric of, of testing um, for, for tryouts? Can you fight? (laughs) I mean, I was, it just put you in a fucking ring and.
0: Yeah. Basically we, uh, there was two guys at 172, which was going to be my my weight. Um, I showed up at the gym at like 185. He gave me 14 days to get to 171 or I wasn't going to make the team. I made it to 171 and then we trained like, I don't know how long it was, a month maybe or two. And then we had um, a fight at the Godage Fieldhouse over on uh, Camp Lejeune. A bunch of people came, they put a ring in the middle and so basically it was intramural. It was to solidify weight classes for the all Marine team. And so I had to fight one of my friends from three, two who came with me and tried out and I ended up winning,
1: um, on points or did you knock them out?
0: No points. It's really hard to knock somebody out. USAA boxing. Yeah. Cause you got the headgear on and, you know, on yeah. all that. But, and you know, I ended up winning the fight and then, um, so I took one seventy two, and then we fought, we went up to new Haven, Connecticut. We went to, uh, Boston, um, basically we did a Northeast tour of the United States and, and I got, uh, I got beat on one of those fights and then I won the rest of them.
1: The, uh, or opon- the, all of your opponents, uh, military members or
0: zero of mine were no shit. Yeah. They so, were out of little Boston Mick gyms. no shit. Guys that were on the USA open circuit oh. or, or, uh, novice circuit. And then we had a couple of open fighters and then they fought open fighters.
1: Was it age grouped also, or just wait? weight so they could have been 40 year olds yeah but you don't see that very often i mean you you can get you can still get down at 40 i i'm not saying you can't i'm 37 (laughs)
0: and i can still fight but uh my my cardio wouldn't be the same i don't think
1: so So all the guys you're fighting were in the within a few years of you probably
0: yeah i would say so some of them yeah i would say so i'd say we were all right there along i fought a um a gold glove from the army which was so i fought one that wasn't on that tour but i fought a gold glove from the army and he was a little older than me, I think. Yeah.
1: How did that go? I beat him. Really? Mm-hmm. Fucking at a Golden Gloves guy. Well, it wasn't a Golden Glove
0: tournament, yeah. but I like to say I took his. Yeah. You know, so. Do
1: you know what the uh, you hear that term thrown around a lot? I mean, to me, the the dog parallel would be champion lines in in fucking newspaper ads, sure. right? Like you hear, oh, he's a Golden Gloves. Like, do you know what the fuck that means? Can it's you? It's like it? a
0: Golden Glove tournament, and you win it. So that's it. It's just. As far as I know. Yeah. I mean. They so say hey, a, that was a Golden Glove champion for, uh, from Army last year that you beat, and I'm like, does that mean I'm a Golden Glove? Well, no, I've seen a Golden Glove tournament, but yeah, so I assume that's what it is. I, I never you. looked too far into it.
1: Who was the one guy that beat you? Don't remember his name. He
0: was. Uh, yeah. I beat his training partner the next day, um, who was supposed to be the guy that was the better out of the two of them, and it was a situation where I messed up. I mean, you got your slips and your ducks. And I slipped when I should have ducked, and he caught me right on the button on the back of my head. And it was a wrap after that. Like, the whole canvas started looking like the ocean. And, like, my my legs went out, you know, were, like, wobbly. And my coach threw in the towel. Yeah. Um. So, that's probably my first Marine yeah. Corps concussion yeah. was, on, was on the <laughs> boxing team. I threw up for, like, two weeks for no reason. Oh, no shit. Oh, yeah. Wow.
1: Um, so. Uh, That's interesting. So... <laughs> On the all-Marine boxing team, you guys are fighting out of Lejeune. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the training regimen like? I mean, was it like being a professional athlete where that's pretty much all you did?
0: I would say so. I mean, I've never been a professional athlete outside of being a Marine. But, um, yeah, like uh, it was three sessions a day, four if we were working up for a fight. So you'd show up at like 7 in the morning. You'd get like a three-mile run in, and then we would do like quick twitch muscle um, work just – you know, firing your muscles as quickly as you can from top to bottom. And then we'd come, you'd leave. Um, it'd be like a two-hour deal, and then you'd leave. Come back like, you know, 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, whatever was posted for us, and it would be, you know, like a full gym workout, no sparring, but full gym. So, it was like, shadow box, speed bag, rhythm bag, upper bag, uh, jump rope. We'd jump rope for like an hour at the start of that practice, yeah. literally our coach had a track of little Wayne music for an hour that we had to jump to <laughs> your favorite. And I was like the one of two white guys on the boxing yeah. team. I don't mind little Wayne, but yeah. for an hour. Yeah. Um, so you would do that and then you'd get into whatever the, you know, we did body hardening. So you'd lay there and on the edge of the, um, the ring and you would like do things different workouts to build your neck muscles for your chin, you know, to have a better chin. And then while you're doing that, guys are standing over you, punching you in the abs, you know, until you get done with however many counts. There's some of that. But after that practice, you go home and you come back and we would do a sparring, a sparring session. And if it was a workup, we'd come back after that and do a second one. Yeah. Wow.
1: So you had seven fights in a year period, nine months? Seven, yeah. So almost – Almost fighting once a month then.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't like that. It was like I fought that one to get the weight class, and then we trained for like three months to go on that tour, and I fought the other six on that tour. Okay. Or the other,
1: yeah, other five or six on that tour. All at 172. Mm -hmm.
0: And and like our coach was really, really, really particular. You couldn't have any nicotine. Um, You couldn't drink. The only time you could drink uh, was if you won your fight. You could drink that night as celebration, but you couldn't get drunk. Uh, if he found you, like even out in town, he caught a guy that was, uh, smoking a cigarette on his way into Walmart. Boom. He was gone from the team. Wow. And he had the power to be able to do that. Um, but I appreciated that too, because it kept me pure. I'd eat like chicken and eggs almost exclusively. And because I had to, if I ate any junk, I would go above my, my weight. And if you ever came into practice and you were, um, even an ounce above your weight, you were done. You're fighting weight.
1: Yeah. so you had to stay at that weight. The so
0: whole time. I I I operated at like one seventy. I never I never fucked with it. Yeah, you know. And then after I'd weigh in for a fight, they'd have like a big wrap bar, and I'd just dumb a bunch of you know calories and uh, probably fought at one seventy
1: two, but I'd always come in under it. Yeah. You know? So, but even when you're training, that entire like tour, you had to stay at your fighting weight the, the entire height. time. Wow. From the time I
0: got that first two weeks to get down, yeah. Through the rest of it, we weighed every every single day. Oh wow. And you would go away, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh how many guys were on the team? I think like um like a dozen? Yeah. Maybe. Was it all walks of the Marine Corps?
0: Yeah, it was the only grunt.
1: Really? Yeah. Everybody else was
0: Actually, uh, Jamel Herring just won a WBO, uh, belt a couple of years ago on Veterans Day. His name is Jamel Simperfy Herring. Shout out. He was on the team with me. Uh, and he got out. He, he was like a, uh, he was a poke, uh, but he spent most of his time on the Marine Corps boxing team. So, you know, yeah. uh, he did his thing. Then he led the USC, the USA team to the Olympics and then he turned pro won and, and, and defended it once or twice and then lost and now he's on his way back up. But, um, Ken Norton, uh, legendary boxer that yeah. broke Muhammad Ali's jaw, started on the Marine Corps boxing team as well. There's a oh. lot. There's a lot there that I didn't know about, yeah. like uh, as far as history. But yeah, yeah,
1: no, that's a, that's a neat chapter for sure. Um, yeah. So better part of a year you do that. Um, what what was the deciding factor that made you leave there and go back to? Had to. Oh, did
0: you? Yeah, had to. I was coming up on my EAS time, and the career planner called me up and he said, you know, uh, we can. We can just eas you straight out of there. You can come back and reenlist. Um, I wanted to re-enlist, so I came back to three two, and I was in their RBE because they were out on the moon now or uh, or training for it, um, and and yeah, I went to the career planner and I said, "You got anything heating up? I want to go. You know, I mi- I've missed everything. I've been on the team. I'm ready to get back in it." And so I think there was something going on with a PSD uh, f- for one of the you know somebody and they said just hang out here I'm going to get you on this PSD and they had some bonuses going on at the time so I I elected to do the operational forces bonus and uh, and then um, sometime shortly after I signed uh, the paperwork is when Obama President Obama uh, approved the troop increase in Afghanistan for Stanley McChrystal and um, so it was like they're going to send the next battalion over right, the most ready battalion, and that was 3-6. Oh, okay. And so he said, you're going to 3-6. I said, what about the PSD? He said, you want it? You're going to get it here. I went to 3-6 in September um, of 09, and we deployed January
1: 2 or something. Yeah. Um, coming from the boxing team back to a, an infantry unit, <sighs> did did all of the guys that you worked with, that, were they aware that you had just come from the boxing team?
0: Yeah, I mean, I told them.
1: Did any um, of them try you? They were going to be like, oh, let's see what you got. Or any, anybody fuck with you that way?
0: No, not really, because you had you had a situation where two of the squad leaders were good to go in the Mew, and as soon as the orders changed to be a combat deployment into a stronghold of Marja, uh, they decided they were going to go ahead and get out. And so they worked these two squads up the entire way as the squad leader going to deploy with them, and then when it changed, they bailed. And oh. so I took over a squad, and that squad didn't have a choice, right? I was a sergeant. Um and they were a good squad they were trained well but uh, they didn't have anybody that was going to fill that billet that yeah. was that was even close close to ex- as experienced I guess and 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 uh they still have they didn't have somebody step up yeah and so they pulled me put me in charge and you know I'm still learning my guys's names on the one field up we got before we left and um you know I was better though uh I had the fuck ups in that first squad. I learned what not to do, and so I just eased in. You know, hey, you guys have been trained. I'll make corrections where I see fit, but I'm gonna assume that you're you're already good to go. And then they showed that to me over that period of three months that they were good to go.
1: Um, you know, and then we pushed out. So, did you have a feeling prior to going that this was going to be a different, different operation or a different deployment?
0: <sighs> um. That that hit me in uh, in Camp Leatherneck. Um, every, every deployment that I did before that, from Banger to Cuba, the, you know, the, the little thing over in Bahrain and then Iraq, everything was a dry hole. Said you're going to get all this stuff, are you going to do these things in Iraq? None of that came true. It was always overestimated. Which and and now in my life I appreciate that. Um, and so I just went into it like, yeah, we're going to the place and we'll see what happens, you know. Um, but then there were CIA. Uh, In on briefs and plainclothes marines rolling with cia shaping the city and they come in telling us numbers that they anticipated and showing us video imagery of checkpoints and minefield id fields and such and when that happened i was like okay this is no bullshit yeah this is this never happened before i never had to get a pseudo top secret clearance for a brief before yeah and so i at that point things things were different Yeah. yeah you
1: guys came uh you flew into kandahar
0: um, yeah, and then, I, I think, and to, to be honest with you, I don't know where we flew in first. We might've came straight down to Leatherneck from, I think we came straight to Leatherneck from Kazakhstan. Oh, okay. Maybe. I can't remember yeah. if I'm being honest. Um, I know we flew commercial there and then, yeah, I think we took like C-130s down into Leatherneck from up there. Oh, okay. But I, but I, don't quote me on that. Yeah.
1: So what was the, uh. I guess the pace or or op-tempo schedule like when you first got to Leatherneck, start getting these briefs, how long until you actually went outside the wire and started getting it? You know, we had that first couple of admin
0: weeks. Um, It was probably two weeks at Leatherneck, and then we, we got shipped. We flew down to Dwyer, and we were staged at Dwyer, and we ran, we went outside the wire and built Built a range to pop everybody's cherry and just make sure weapons were good. We wanted to fire some apobs because we were packing them in, and a lot of guys hadn't seen them or fired them. And we got our army uh, or our Afghani army attachments there, so we wanted to get out and operate with them one time at least before you know going in. And so we did that, and then and then they flew us back up to Leatherneck because that's where the Hilo born invasion went out of and we were, we were helicopter company. So um, we flew out of Leatherneck and I think the 13th, uh, 12th or 13th of February and uh, landed in, landed in the heart of Northern Marja at like three in the morning.
1: At that point and leading up to that, again, talking about kind of the why as to you're there and, and what the, the overall scope of the mission set is, you know, not just, hey we're doing fucking recon by fire but it's like hey there's this group how, how much of the in the weeds details were were you privy to prior to going out I was a squad leader so I was as far as
0: our platoon was concerned and our company was concerned we got great orders uh, detailed imagery um, they showed us a couple of machine gun bunkers with you know T-shaped T-wall barriers on top six ports apiece firing steps They showed us, uh, they told us the vicinity of of the area that that would be, um, though they they weren't certain.
1: I guess as far as like the 30,000 foot view, like, I mean, to me, that sounds great on a tactical level, but from like a a big picture operational level, was there anything communicated to you as to who you were fighting, why they were there, what the, the overall kind of scope of the mission was? As far as what they told us, it was uh,
0: the last Taliban stronghold in in Helmand province. And we were looking for C2 nodes to destroy that. And our objective as a platoon company and platoon uh, under that was to seize uh, and control MEB objective two. And that was supposed to be the lead IED bomb maker C2 node uh, all in one area down there. And, um, so that's, that's what we focused on.
1: Did you know about how many enemy fighters were expected in the area? They said
0: eight to 1200.
1: And how many of you
0: were there total? I mean, we, a lot. (laughs) I mean, it was our, it was our battalion. uh, Which is how many? One sixes battalion, like a thousand probably. So I mean, mean, give or take there's attachments and different, different things, but, um, and then you had a couple Kandaks of Afghan army guys. Um, then you had the Brits who were above us. Uh, there was a lot of different moving pieces and a lot of people. Yeah. Going, not in my area specific, but going to that whole
1: area you know, to stomp it out. Yeah, yeah. First time going out, actual shit goes down. Walk us through that. The
0: helicopter landed. Um helicopter landed and i had my nods down and i just seen a oh my god amount of like debris in the air and i couldn't everything slowed down for me like when when things would be dramatic my whole brain would slow down and uh i seen all this debris and i'm thinking in my head like what the fuck is that and it was water they had flooded the the lz they got lucky um and it was horrible.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, so they assumed that that's where you would land. And say, I assume, yeah. yeah,
0: you know, there's a lot of irrigation uh, canals and such in, in that in that area for their poppy and you know the in the marijuana fields and different things. And uh, they flooded them out and ten meters in any direction. If that chopper would have moved, we on dry ground, but <laughs> for whatever reason, we landed right in it. And um, how deep was it? Like I almost lost a marine. No shit. Almost lost like a marine almost i had a saw gunner travis vocolo shout out and he when i seen him his face was almost going under you know because you'd picture 50 guys coming off of a you know like a a chopper and they just go on each other like when i stepped off my my foot went probably almost to my knee and then all these guys because we've been doing these sexy on off drills and training are flooding out and it just became like this cluster fuck jesus of weapons that now can't fire and dudes that are stuck we lost a small rocket in a backpack because it just ate it yeah um it was a shit show and uh and as soon as that happens you know the chopper the chopper drops us and he goes up and we can see technical vehicles like less than a click to our south bop, 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 and tracers going up at the birds and i'm like okay it's not a dry hole get the fuck moving you know and we're trying to be quiet and then uh, we had ac-130 circling and they were dumping out these like 55-gallon barrels full of IR. And it would light up like a square click. I think it's like 700 by 700 technically, but the whole battlefield was light. And I'm kind of lost in this. And he calls down to our JTAC and says, hey, be prepared to defend yourself. You have an enemy platoon coming from the north. Uh, and I looked to the north. He had his shit on blast. I looked to the north, and it had this big round hay bales you know out in the field and there was dudes with rpgs and dudes with machine guns and i'm like holy fuck all right i had three operating weapons at the time mine my platoon sergeants and and my uh first
1: team leader what were they what were you carrying
0: i had an m4 is that what the other two those two had an m4 yeah yeah. um so not big guns either no and everybody else is trying to scrub mud out of their shit and uh as soon as I seen him, I said, We got to get something now. So he brought Cobra, Cobra section, gunship, gunship section in, cleared them hot. And just as these, <laughs> just as these gunships are coming down, uh, the front guy, the point man of that supposed en- enemy element, f- turns on his IR flicker. And, uh, we're, you know, like a movie abort, 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 countermeasures. And I'm just standing there in this mud, like, cause that was our partnered a a force who forgot to turn on their you know their ir flicker so that was how the first two minutes opened up um after the sun came up we our first objective was to hold this land bridge had an id on it that we could see we got to our foothold we're checking it out we had to hold that land bridge because uh another platoon was going to clear the little city in front of us of shinny wall. And we had to make sure that the MSR didn't backfill, you know, we're watching the MSR, make sure they didn't backfill guys from our side. And then after they finished their clear, we would suck to them and kind of leapfrog them up to the next spot. So um, while we were doing that, I was, I went out with the engineers to check the composition of the bridge so that we could set an APOB off over that uh, IED and simp dead it so that we had a clear path and uh, they opened up on us from from where we landed back to the north. And and it was on after that. Yeah.
1: What was – were other – the guys that had uh, malfunctioning weapons, were they back online yet or were a lot of them still down?
0: Uh, so I guess I skipped that. Yeah, so at 3.30 in the morning, after all the Cobras get called off, our A&A, you know, we figure out who they are. We make a movement from our LZ up to that land bridge intersection. And um, we get in, we kick the people out. um, and they had, they had a freshwater well in their courtyard, which is insane to me because not every place did. Very rarely did you find that. And it had a bucket and everything. So as soon as we got in, everything was cleared. The boys started pulling up bottle, you know, buckets of water and just getting all the weapons clean. That took, like, a very short amount of time. Everybody had cleaning kits, punched everything through. The outsides might have looked a little bit muddy, but the inners were good to fire. Um, and so, yeah, so before the, before the sun even came up and before I even went out to, to check the bridge with the OD, everybody was up, everybody was posted. Um, our whole platoon was then co-located. Uh, so we had like three or four compounds that we were holding on this, on this intersection. So everybody was good then.
1: So when you say us, how many, how many people is that? as far as the platoon yeah
0: i mean a platoon a platoon's 40 some, something depending on what you got and then we had attachments we had the fire support team you know we had weapons guys we had a mortar team um assault team so you're probably looking at you know 60 guys around about yeah.
1: okay yeah you know. and where were how far away were the nearest other units
0: to our south maybe uh click and then to our um so uh, to our direct front was where the platoon was clearing Shinnywall.
1: And I mean, 500 meters first building and there. So another 40, 60 guys up there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, so at that point, it hadn't really gone south in terms of being fired on really, right? Not, Not yet. yet. Not yet. It, but it was about to. Yeah, right then. <laughs> yeah. So the sun comes up, you guys start moving north.
0: Well, no, we weren't moving. We had to hold that intersection okay. uh, as a mission. But I wanted to get out to the bridge and have the APOBs in place that way if we had to make, you know, movement across to support them, the ID was already handled. You pop smoke, let it simp debt, and then on we can go.
1: Can you explain APOB for the viewer?
0: So that's an anti personnel obstacle breaching system. Um, and I don't know what it has. Like it's like uh, it's a two backpack system and it has a rocket, a little a little fire that, you know, kind of D-ring to a hole Uh, strand of engineer tape that has like a hundred and some odd frag grenade type explosives in it and so you pull the you pull the the smoke on it you got like seven eight seconds to get back before the rocket you know little firing takes off and it's going to stretch that whole line of explosives in a line you know in a straight line and then another five eight seconds boom everything blows up. So you're going to de- anything that's there, sympathetically detonate anything that's, you know, there around it explosive wise, but it's supposed to give you a three to four foot wide path obstacle and, and explosive free so that you, you know, you know, you're not going to step on an ID going.
1: What's the maximum distance that you can clear with one? I don't know. It's long. Um,
0: they have bigger ones on the trucks and tanks called Miklicks that are much longer. Um, but I, I want... I, I don't want to mess this up, probably 50, 50 feet, 60 feet. I mean, it, it may be even longer than that. Yeah. Um, I'd have to look it up.
1: Yeah. All right, so you guys are pushing out, getting ready to handle that, and then what? So fire erupts from the north as we're trying to you know, situate this. And what
0: was cool about my building that my guys were in was that um, because of poppy uh, harvesting over there, they would stack them. They would stack like the old dry stems for kindling and firewood or whatever. But they would stack them up the wall, and that there was this perfect ramp leading up to like a firing position inside this courtyard. And so I grabbed my guys, my little security team. We haul ass back in. As soon as I come into my courtyard, I just run up that ramp. And I had uh, John Simmering, one of my saw gunners, a corporal, had him with me. I run up the ramp. And as soon as I'm looking to the north, there's two guys, Soviet block machine, uh machine gun style weapons running through this tree line and i had packed i always packed a lot of tracers i was tracer heavy as a squad leader because i'm trying to mark targets more than i shouldn't be firing a whole bunch ideally i should be marking for the squad and so i came up i thought the guy was about 300 i got the chevron 300 on him and i seen it hit his feet like at his feet and when it did he just kind of looked up like that and so i put the four right on his chest Boom. And he folded, and then I hit him two or three more times. Boom, boom, boom. He's still reaching for his weapon. And as soon as he kind of expired, his buddy took off running uh, to the north, and John Simmering hit him with like a eight to ten round burst, bop, of that saw, and boom, he folded. Now there's people over to the north firing at us that we can't ID. We don't know exactly where they are. And... um all I could think was follow that tree line North. They had to be running somewhere. They felt safe. They had to be going back to safety. And so I follow that tree line North and back about a click or so. Um, there's a building with like four or five dudes, black mam jam standing on the second story. So I instantly uh, spin up a fire mission. Um, and it's cool. Cause there's video footage of uh, the mortar section right here. And then you could hear me come over the radio, give the fire mission. And then you see them. Boom. Boom. Um, and that was really, that was really cool. That was the opening. So once we put mortars back on those guys, I can't say that we had a direct hit, but we hit close enough that they weren't on that top of that building anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that firefight raged. Uh, I want to say, you know, we killed a lot of the guys in little rat lines and little canal lines um, between us and that, that two-story building those guys were on. Which is a distance of about what? <sighs> So 400 was the first couple of guys I hit, and it was probably right around that 300, 200 range out. Okay. Out, and then uh, at that first day, and, you know, and and probably in that deployment in general, 200 or 300, 400 was about average where they would expose themselves. Now, we got in on them closer than that, but when they wanted to fight, it was at that range. Yeah. And then they, when we closed, they'd bounce
1: back, you know. And, you know. So you guys uh – or taken down a handful or, or possibly even several dozen guys over how long of a period that day?
0: I mean, it didn't stop until night. We dropped a 500-pound bomb uh, on a compound, not we. I got to videotape it, which was pretty cool. Um, but you, guys guys just to the south of us dropped a, dropped a big one on a compound. They had several guys inside of. They fought all the way, pinned them in there, and it was one of the situations where if they squirted out without a tunnel, you'd have seen them. Yeah. And so they called that in. The aircraft came in and popped two times, couldn't tally, third time tallied. And then when they dropped that bomb, um, the battlefield went quiet. There was a lull for quite some time. And and I talk about it in the book. I would later discover that um, long range weapons, they didn't understand them. Even a, even a SAS, even a sniper that's got a 50 cal way out and can touch them. They didn't understand that. Um, They didn't understand fixed wing aircraft and bombs just showing up they did understand choppers um but they didn't understand the rest of that stuff high mars rockets i launched on them they did not understand that
1: but by, by not understand do you mean that they would cease fighting out of confusion yep and, and they would
0: freak them out like what was that what, yeah you know yeah. yeah
1: and how long would these um cessations and fire last would it, did it vary
0: it varied, yeah, depending on the day and, and probably depending a lot on the Taliban commander that was in charge. Um, we intercepted so much of their traffic with our people um, that we, we we knew where they were, we knew who they were talking to, uh, and we knew that they were confused about these long-range systems. Yeah. But, you know, that lull, they dropped that – we dropped that big, uh, that big one on the first morning, and that lull stretched into real close to – to dark for us. Now there was other platoons still fighting up in front, but that situation back here calmed down for
1: the last couple hours of, of daylight. Yeah. And then did it pick back up or did you So
0: guys- we owned the night and I think that's something they did understand. Um, once it, once it became night, uh, nighttime, you know, visibility was out. We put the nods on and uh, E-man, my platoon commander said, Hey, let's wake them up. And we hit that. <laughs> we hit that damn APOB, dual APOBs. Got the simp debt, and then uh, and we traveled across and met up with the company uh, up in Shinnywall. and then I think we slept for a couple hours that night. And my guys did; I didn't sleep at all. It's yeah. very strange. I talk about it in the book like my body wouldn't sleep, and uh, that happened for a couple of days. Then my body crashed. Yeah.
1: So how long was that entire engagement? Several days. I mean, I mean, in
0: Marsha, we we were engaged. We were engaged six to eight hours a day, every day, for probably the first twenty days, or no, not, maybe fourteen.
1: I mean, was that was that an extension of that? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so you, like
0: we landed, they were mad. I mean, we landed in their backyards, you know, and yeah. then the rest of the rest of the ISAF elements circled the city and pushed them in at us. So you had one six Bravo Southern Marja proper, three six Kilo Northern Marja proper, and then everybody else they didn't have squeezing, they couldn't get out. It was like a fire sack, literally. Yeah, you know, they'd bounce from us to them. Um, so yeah, like it was wild. Second day, sun comes up to the sound of two forties and Soviet blocks trading rounds, RPGs, mortars, and I, I liken it to the uh, Marine Corps commercial where, like, the guys get off and they're just running into the fight. And this is literally what we did that day. We came out, we banged left, and the fight was in front of us. And we could hear the other platoons uh, just getting after it and calling in air and calling in this. And you could hear all that. And we're in a we're in a tactical column patrolling that way. You see, like there's some buildings that we can't see the battle yet, you know. And then gave the order to pick it up because guys were getting hurt on our team or getting, you know, uh, you know things were getting a little more intense for them. And I just remember, you know, giving the, the call to pick it up, and everybody just started running in a tactical column straight at him.
1: Yeah. So this is the second day.
0: Yeah, it's morning, too.
1: And you guys stayed in that posture and, and area for 20 days-ish.
0: Well, more than that, but it was hot for about that long, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, want to say we came in the 13th. Um, since 24, yeah, a couple of weeks of just all out getting after
1: it were you guys being resupplied regularly or how how were you getting food and water and bullets
0: (laughs) well um yeah we got it we had to get resupplied um we ran out of food they said we would take our objective in the first day so we took three days where the food it took us three or four days of fighting to take our objective that's how much resistance in that first four days happened and it was only three clicks we had to move but they were killing (laughs) they were hitting us we were hitting them um and so it was wide open, but uh, we ran out of food quick. Guys are burning calories under kits. And, and, um, and so we called in a resupply, I don't know, like the third day or something. And Dash 1's got water, Dash 2's got food, and they, they almost took Dash 2 out of the sky. Couldn't even drop the food. You had to bail out. They dropped the water, and like probably the first couple thousand bottles on the bottom just blew up. And that became like a water retrieval mission in the middle of a field. Um, and then, honestly, we didn't get food until they were trying to open up the ground line of communication. And until the Glock got open, we didn't have MREs and stuff come in. Uh, so we raided the bazaar. Um, we took our objective, uh, and it had everything. It had two fo- mutually fortified machine gun bunkers, um, a C2 node. It had all kinds of, like, OE antennas coming up out of it. And we took all of that. Um, and that was a fight. That was day three.
1: So it was day two... About like day one, or was it even more intense?
0: It was more intense.
1: Were there any instances of you, you guys taking casualties on day two? No. So it was, it was pretty lopsided. It was intense, but you guys were kicking ass.
0: We fucked them up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, ballpark of how many fighters in, in your guys' – for your platoon, the engagement of how many guys you were going against – to, to.
0: I think that's just really hard to say because they were pockets out acting like teams, almost gorillas, right? So yeah. you'd have a pocket up here, and it might have five, eight guys in it, so a, a little little baby squad. But a baby squad with a sniper and a machine gun can yeah. can hold you on a battlefield in certain ways until you locate them. Um, but I would say on day two, we it was probably somewhere in the I don't know fifty to a hundred fighters, um, maybe more. It's just hard to say how many were moving and. um. Yeah.
1: Were you guys doing any type of battle damage assessment, uh, checking the the bodies and seeing what they had on them and any of that kind of stuff?
0: When we could. Um, One of the big mind fucks that I would assume they did it on purpose, and I'm just going to give them that because they weren't all stupid. Um, And they would police up their body and the bodies and the brass and the weapons very quickly. Uh, at first, they were we didn't know what they were doing. They were bringing in, like, white vans that was like their ambulances. And when we found out that that was Taliban fighters coming, you know, to retrieve or help out other Taliban fighters, we started blowing those up. Um, but they were very good about policing that shit up. So we would get excited when we closed on them fast enough to get weapons, which in the beginning was, was more than, than later because, like I said, there was fat – average engagements might have been two to three hundred, four hundred sometimes but in the beginning it was uh it was closer than that yeah
1: sometimes so um did, were, did you find anything that surprised you on any of the battle damage assessment stuff
0: i uh, found a guy a foreign fighter card uh it was a laminated tight you know professionally done foreign fighter card and it had Pashtun Wali on the on the one side, and it had a, like a Syrian dialect of Farsis on the other side or some kind of other language. And so they had a whole system of reinforcements and of putting special people in. He'd come to the border. Uh, you know, somebody hits you. You give them your foreign fighter card because you don't speak the same language. They turn it over. They read where you're supposed to go and who you are, and they take you into it. And intel came out of that foreign fighter card. So I thought
1: that was cool. Um Any special weapons or or crazy weapons? that uh, Uh, A Dragunov
0: one time, I think. uh, We recovered from a sniper, but it didn't have like your regular Dragunov uh, uh, scope. Um, I wouldn't say anything weird. I mean, no, no, I don't think so.
1: Anything particularly grisly? I mean, it's all grisly to a certain extent, but anything that stood out
0: mean that they had on them or or, or that stood out
1: just that Watch. you came across
0: oh man i watched a guy disappear one time um that was in the beginning time uh, we were trying to like build up our cops now a combat outpost and uh you know the people there are so fucked you know, like and that's the thing you think about later when you when you grow up <laughs> you, like they're just stuck between a rock and a hard place the regular people yeah. now you got the taliban but they would send in night night riders is what we ended up calling them and they'd be like they'd come in in the middle of the night either on a bicycle or on a moped or whatever um they bring an id and instructions to a farmer take his women and children and say you don't do it we're gonna rape and kill all of them cut their heads off this is where we want it we want it there tomorrow by this time and any father's gonna do that you have to do that and, and it's admirable but any Lance Corporal Marines gonna fucking smoke you for which is also admirable and so they're still like, you're going to kill my guys if you put that in. I know that I have to execute, you know, I have to execute mission to kill you. If you don't do it, they're going to behead all your women and children and your family. And so they're, they're just so fucked. But it was a guy that clearly didn't know what he was doing. I was watching him from about 1,200 meters out. He was on a road we call Route Kathy. And um, he was trying to put an IED in and went away, you know, went all the way away.
1: What did you hit him with? And I didn't hit him. <laughs> Oh, he blew himself. up. I got gotcha. you. He just went away. Yeah, like he, yeah. he really didn't know what he was doing, I you gotcha. know, or he fucked up. Yeah,
0: but but to you know, when you see a body, and I'm I'm doped in on him because I was going to hit him.
1: Yeah, and
0: I'm doped in and and it's just like that's shocking. Like yeah. if you've never seen that, that can be shocking. Yeah, um, our weapons are amazing. Um, high Mars rocket system is is insane. Do you it's know like, what the specs are on it? <sighs> I know we fired them from Leatherneck into Mars. I think they have a max distance, like 90 clicks. Holy shit. Accurate to within one yard on a 10 digit grid. Damn. What are they fired from? I mean, we might have to pull it up. I was always on the (laughs) receiving end, but I think it's like a, like a truck. I gotcha. You know, I'm not, you uh, know what
1: the explosive weight is? No clue. No, I just
0: know it looked like the hand of God split the clouds
1: (laughs) and whatever it hit was fucking um, gone. Yeah.
0: Yeah. On that second day, you know, not too much killing doesn't fuck me up. Um, killing the right people doesn't fuck me up. But on that day, on that second day, third day, we're trying to take our second day. We're trying to take care of this third day. We hit that bunker system, but on that second day, they hit one of my saw gunners. Um, they were masking sniper fire and small arms. So it'd be like, bah, 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 wah. Bah, 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 wah. so he was taking well-aimed shots amongst other people with small arms. And, um, and caught, one of my saw gunner, Vocolo, caught it through and through through the shoulder.
1: With a sniper around. Probably.
0: It could have been small. I mean, I think it was 7.62. Yeah. So, you can call it what you want to call it. Uh, I think it was one of those heavier uh, projectiles. Anyway, he gets hit. And that was the first time that anybody in my direct command had been hurt, uh, ever. And, uh, and I took that extremely personal. It's like I didn't get scared. I got very angry, though. I get him patched up and i hit L- lt up i'm like lt what do we got and he's like we got all of it I'm like roger that so i ran and we were under pretty heavy fire at this point i ran back through a couple openings to find the uh fire support team leader who's a lieutenant and uh he was like ducking down behind some walls and stuff and i just grabbed the vector dagger from him boom hit the compound gave it back ran up to my guys and then after that i don't know what happened all i know is somebody called for fire with that, with a HIMAR and a HIMAR came, um, HIMAR hit the wrong building. Um, like 14 women and children come out of it on fire. God damn! Missing arms, missing legs. Who um, and who
1: called that shot in?
0: That's why I said I don't know what happened after that because that's a company command authorization. I gave them the building. I gave them why my guys are getting hit. It's time to fuck them up. And then the, it was a big deal. And uh, I, I don't know still to this day how that got fucked up so bad. Um, the bottom line is it got fucked up. Yeah. And these kids, and, and it was uh, seven women and I think five kids. They were all under the age of six. And they just, they got hit by the hand of God. <laughs> and they come out fucked up. And we launched a, uh, my my CO launched a uh, a group and had a mass casualty evacuation lined up to come get them. And we couldn't get to the ground with it because they're shooting so many fucking rockets at it. And so I that sh- I struggle with
1: that. Um, did that impact you right when it happened or did No, you- I
0: said, fuck them, they shouldn't have been there. Yeah. And that, like, that emotion is, is what haunts me. And so all my guys got out but him, and man, I just fell apart, mad, you know, Screaming.